Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices, Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you could join us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing the Monday-Thursday lectionary. Our amazing guests this week are the Reverend Dr. Hilary Raining, who is the rector of St. Christopher's Church in Gladwin, Pennsylvania, and creator of The Hive, online spirituality and wellness digital community. Additionally, Hilary is the beekeeper, yoga and meditation instructor, as well as a forest therapist. The Reverend Dr. Aaron Kirby, who is the rector of St. John's Episcopal Church Marion in the Diocese of Western North Carolina. She is a sacred ground facilitator and is committed to social justice, racial reconciliation, and seeing the sacred in all of creation. And last but not least, the Reverend Christopher McNabb, who is an Episcopal priest living in Seattle, Washington. He's passionate about ministry with first responders, especially EMS, as well as the rights and the needs of immigrant communities. When not working, he's out exploring the beautiful Pacific Northwest with his dog, Lucky. Welcome, friends. We're talking today about Monday, Thursday. That's sort of like the beginning, right? We have like the triduum, which is kind of like one service, but it's kind of like three. How does that work for you? And how do you think about it? What I love about it and what I sometimes worry about and even talk to you about with my students at seminary is the depth of the embodiedness of these days, right? Actually entering into it, not just in the way that we sometimes pray, which is, yes, beautiful liturgy. Yes, you know, reading the scriptures and meditating on them. But there's an emphasis on action and getting your body into the game, walking the walk of Jesus, actually washing feet, you know, eating the bread and the wine that is so beautiful. And if you're not careful, can pull you almost too far down, right? Because by the time the end of these three days is over, we're back in Easter. (laughs) To watch this, I think, is an exercise in spiritual maturity. Hmm. Walk Jesus both on his way to his passion and remembering the gift of the resurrection as well, which helps us go from, you know, maybe living a life of spiritual lows and spiritual highs instead of learning how to walk in a state of maturity as a spiritual person. It's training ground for that. For me, helping a congregation, because that's been my primary ministry since I've been a priest, but helping a congregation into the triduum and helping them to understand that this is one service, that to begin that walk on Monday, Thursday, and to talk them through that as part of the service that, you know, we're going to, when we leave, of course, we're leaving in silence because we're setting up for Good Friday. We're going to do the watch, trying to engage them in that piece of it as well. It's a powerful service for me. You know, I hesitate. I already said services. They're not services. Mm. One flow as we follow Christ through this passion that he enters in. And as we follow the apostles and uh, Jesus's other disciples through these days and how not only that has to be embodied and feel, but how that affects us spiritually and brings us into a more fulsome Easter Sunday, especially the great vigil, the Easter vigil, to get them to come through and then build into that the history Uh, all the way from the Hebrew Testament into Easter morning. I tell them every time, you know, it's our most beautiful service uh, moving through these three days and encourage as many people as possible to enter into them. And those people that do, 
they get it and they are hooked and they want to help next year and they want to be part of it. And it makes their Easter season so much richer. So I grew up Catholic in the Philadelphia suburbs and Villanova University was my home church. And I remember as a kid, my family was very culturally Catholic, but Holy Thursday was just a step too far. Anytime we had to take our shoes off, that felt a little too much. (laughs) So my family was always worded out that I always wanted to go to that service. And so I would often walk from the house where I grew up to up to Villanova University, which was about a mile. And I remember just being this incredibly intimate time. I went to an all boys Catholic high school. So we didn't, you know, school was off. I didn't have finals that I had to worry about. And I really could focus on, you know, the profundity of this time, right? To me, it felt just very intimate. Christianity is so much more than a once a week obligation, right? It really can be this kind of all in mentality. One of the things I worry about, right, is as the congregations get smaller and smaller, is there's just so much work to do. Like the triduum is so much work. And so when I was a priest in charge, I actually worked with our cathedral and I said, hey, like, can we come to you? Because they just have so many more resources than we had as a tiny church that worshipped, you know, 30 people on a Sunday was like a reason for jumping up and down, you know. And luckily for us, the cathedral was a 20 minute drive. And so we could really work with them and, and really have the beautiful choir, right? All the stuff that we sort of think about as part of the triduum that can really make it that profound experience for people. I always think of the triduum as like all good stories that comes in a trilogy, right? Like you could have like each, like, you know, like the movies, like Star Wars or (laughs) Hobbit or um, Lord of the Rings, like you have these different pieces, but they're all meant to be part of one larger whole. And that's probably just my growing up in the 80s, I suppose, probably. Well, I love that because it's so dynamic, you know, to have a story in three parts, four parts. You're so drawn into it at that point. I love that. A lot of people do different things here, and I've some I've heard are like faux pas, like you shouldn't do it. Others I've heard whatever. So I've seen people do, you know, foot washing, some sort of like Passover Seder. I've seen uh, a large focus on the Eucharist. People focus a lot on the Great Commandment. What liturgically comes up for you, or what ideas do you have liturgically for this service? Congregations, by and large, unless it has been their practice are a little wary of the foot washing. And so my way of helping them enter into that is rather than have me and the senior warden and a a group of, you know, leaders do that foot washing, I invite people to come up as families and wash each other's feet. Uh, When I was at a church that Shaniqua attended, I invited the choir to come up together and do that. And I went into one of their choir practices because they were they were among the most active people in that parish and, and said, yeah, I need your help. I need you to do this because they had not ever really done it. And I insist on being in the church when we do that. So we have the meal uh, in the parish hall, wherever that is. And then we process into the church and we wait to do the gospel and to begin that foot washing after we are in a sacred space. Hmm. What liturgical suggestions do you have for this service? There are so many wonderful pieces that you could add to Monday, Thursday. I have two thoughts. One, 
If you are in a congregation that hasn't tried some of these things yet, the foot washing, the stripping of the altar, which I'll mention in a moment, a possibility of having a vigil that resembles the Garden of Gethsemane. If you haven't done one of those, don't try to cram all of them into a service the first time around. Hmm. Since these are each one of them so powerful and people have such reactions to them, that's intentional, right? Everything that's happening in the service, we've used the word intimate. It is so intimate, almost more intimate than people can stand sometimes within their, uh, if you're asking them to do all these things at once. And they're also supposed to be a bit shocking, right? You know, Jesus's disciples were shocked by everything he did this night. So I would say a lot of education and pick one new thing a year. I liked how Aaron was also mentioning that to get people within the congregation to help. When I've added foot washing into a congregation that hasn't tried it before, I asked kids to help me with it. They loved it. They had no ego needs to keep their shoes on. So they, they were the first people that helped with it. The second thing I will mention is uh, in the churches where I've been blessed to serve, we've started a tradition of both stripping the altar and scourging the altar, You know, really making sure that all of the beautiful vestiture the hangings, the paramounts, things that go into a church, even in our very simple uh, sanctuary that we have here, all of that goes away at the end of the service. And it makes the starkness of realizing what's about to happen with the rest of these days as we go. With that bare altar, we'll take water and very dramatically, you know, now that I have no stole on, nothing grand, I'll just take a towel over my arm and pour water over the altar and, and wash it deliberately as though we are preparing this body for burial, preparing the spot to be a holy place. It's a beautifully moving tradition. And with all of the extra stuff gone, it's the stark contrast that makes it so powerful. So that's one that I always recommend. It's beautiful. It's artistic. It's moving. It's all the things you need. Yeah, I love that. And Hillary, you've given me some ideas that I'm going to have to to mull over here. The only piece I'll add is that I think one of the things that can be so beautiful and, and so profound is when the music is very, is like sort of like more of like Tizé style, where it's really easy for folks to like learn the refrain and just repeat that over and over again, right? There, it kind of helps people fall into that more meditative space while the clergy or the altar guild or whoever is stripping the altar I think it helps sort of set the right vibe for that time. I remember I, I had the opportunity to travel to Tizé and late at night, like there would be folks who would just stay in the prayerful chapel space that they have at Tizé until like 12, 30, 1 o'clock in the morning, right? You have all these people who were just kind of doing the chants on their own. Um, and it kind of felt like that, what I remember is Holy Thursday growing up. And so I think that really can have, can set a profound effect for folks that there's a simplicity to the Triduum that I think all different ages, right, can sort of hit in at their own place or space that works for them. You know, liturgically, that it feel intimate, that we invite people to do this in family, whether those families are the families that they have made, mm -hmm. and to sit together and enter into this time of humility. You know, that has been described as the greatest act of humility you know, that he could have offered them at that time, because it's a liturgical act, washing of feet. It wasn't a cleanliness thing. It was a ritual act of purification, of preparing and, and lovingness. You know, in John's gospel that we had today, it talks about, you know, you're already clean. You've done your ritual washing of your head and your feet and everything. So the only thing that still needs attention as we come into this space is our feet because we walked here. Hmm. You know, I always think about the idea that our feet are carrying us 
into this sacred space. And it also kind of connects back to take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Mm. You know, how can we incorporate maybe that kind of thinking into the space, even as we sit and talk? I like the idea even more now that I'm thinking about it this way. Thank you for making me think about it this way of, you know, moving from one space into another space to do that rather than staying in one room and having the whole, you know, the whole service in one area, but making that movement, that symbolic movement, you know, from outside to inside before the feet are stripped and blessed as we strip the altar later. I love these conversations. We get all sorts of ideas. For Ash Wednesday, we talked about like trying to plant a seed and talking about like dirt. And it was very powerful. And Jazzy, who's from Hawaii, was coming up with all these great metaphors and stuff with nature. And she was talking about they have church outside because their building is condemned. And so they like pull this altar out. And I'm just thinking about how cool it'd be to, and it's Hawaii, of course, so it's probably nice temperatures, but you could like walk barefoot and be on the grass if you wanted. I like doing the foot washing. I usually like get like a turkey roaster and like put the rags in there and then like pour water over and put a little essential oil and then let's like let them heat up and then turn it off just before the service starts. And that usually be just the right temperature. That way everybody gets a fresh towel. So people aren't worried about like foot fungus or whatever. (laughs) Um, But I love the feet washing. And we actually have a deacon who comes from our Sudanese congregation. That's our largest congregation in our diocese. And they don't do that service there. And so he always wants to come to our church. For him, that's a very important part of his diaconal ministry. And so he always comes to to do that with us. Of course, it's sort of like the quintessential diaconal service. Have any of you done anything with like making bread? I know some churches will make their own bread. And I just feel like that part of their bread is so powerful. And then I, I haven't seen any churches, but I've heard of them that like make their own wine. Oh, cool. I have somebody in my congregation who uses my honey, um, a beekeeper, to make some uh, mold wine. So maybe I'll ask him if I can borrow some this year. That sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) I've been in a congregation before that has made their own bread for this night. And you're so right. There's something powerful about breaking bread that has been lovingly made by somebody and the prayers that can go into it. And even scoring the back of it so it breaks in just a certain Mm. way you know each piece of it becomes its own meditative act so i think that's a beautiful idea we did one where like he was very into like creation care and things i was gonna call him a hippie but and he is kind of a hippie but (laughs) we like made the bread and he like brought like the wheat berries and we like ground them by hand to make the flour and it was very cool and all we were doing that he was talking about creation and how we care for and you know it was like this beautiful educational piece and then he did it for the native congregation and we use wheat berries, but we also put in wild rice. It's like a medicine, but it's also a food. But it's like you have to have wild rice and all the mm. things for those tribes up there. And I thought that was really cool. It scandalized one of our older congregants who was like, it has to be wheat. And I'm like, well, there's wheat in there too. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty cool because then we had that bread and we could use that. And it had our food that we would eat too. That's powerful. I love that. That's great. Maybe we can convince our uh, Episcopal churches in Napa Valley to get the wine thing going, you know? Yes. (laughs) A man who had his own like vineyard was part of his property and he's an inventor, but he was in seminary with us. I don't think he's a priest yet, but he was also Catholic and then becoming Episcopalian. And uh, he was like, I can make wine. We should just have wine. So he gave us some wine one year, but it was like, not the port that you're used to. It was like cab or, you know, something else. But he's like, I can have them make port next time when they make the wine. I was like, that would be awesome. It's like local, right? Oh, how cool. Yeah. In fact, one of our neighbor to neighbor teams was from the Napa Valley area. 
Let's talk a little bit about the Exodus. I always find it so interesting because like at some point I read it and I'm like, this is like the angry God that's, you know, like I'm going to crush the world and blah, 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 but only you will be safe. And then at the same time, because God is so specific in what God says, but then God also is like, you must eat it hurriedly, but if you don't eat it, it can be burned. So it's like, there's all these, like, you must do this, but if you're not going to do this, then you do this. And it's kind of like, God's already putting grace in there. What is your take on the Exodus and what stands out for you as you hear it? So two things stand out. The line, your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. This idea of purity, right, has sort of been with us in religion from the very beginning, that there's something about purity that feels close to godliness. Of course, like, I think there's a place for that. But what strikes me is that if a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. And for me, I think in church, we've focused, especially in the United States, right, and our Puritan roots. Yeah, it's so in there. And yet, I think what Holy Thursday brings up for me is like, we're going to share this meal together, right? And so we will share with one another. We may not have it all together. And that's actually why I think it is beautiful if churches can work together or if you can go to the cathedral, right? Like, there's a way in which it's not just like, oh, one congregation in this little town. Mm. It's all of us together right? All of us make this community. Mm. My hope, my dream for the church is that we focus more on the sharing and, you know, less on the purity. That's beautifully said. I love also the way you both have woven together here, this idea that yes, there's a true element of judgment here. We see God taking forceful action. And I think we tend to underappreciate how different this God is from anything they would have expected in this day and age. A God that actually cares enough to liberate people mm. didn't really care too much about the people as long as they were offering the right sacrifices. And this God's sacrifice isn't even about, I want this because I deserve this from you. It's like the sacrifice here is a lamb. And later on, then we see the fullness of that sacrifice. Right? It's a beautiful image. I also love the fact when we read this, and I think it happens again later with the story of Jesus at this Last Supper, I think I tend to read this as like, ah, oh, what would it be like for me to be one of the Israelites? Or ah, oh, what would it be like for me to be one of Jesus's disciples? I'm very rarely asking myself, hey, how much of an Egyptian have I been lately? Mm. <laughs> like, how much has my heart been hardened? Or how much injustice have I been a party to? How much like Judas have I been? Or even Peter? There's so, I think, much invitation in both these stories ask ourselves these hard questions. The Pharaoh character in this whole saga oftentimes gets described as his heart being hardened. I like to think of that not just as having a hardness of heart because of anything that God has done, but rather it's like the difference between clay, which can also be hard, mm -hmm. or wax, right? Like when you are in the light of God, that light can either harden you if you have that heart of clay, or your heart can be melted by it if you have a heart of wax, right? Like so who are we in this characters and how can we remember the mercy that God is showing here in perhaps unexpected ways? I try and think about what is the blood that we're putting on the lintels right now? And, you know, I think for some folks in our Christian faith, Christian broadest sense of the word, it's like, you know, we have to have the American flag on our whatever. And like, there's all of this tie up with like America first and all of this mess. Um, and I think that's sort of a, a skewed sense of what the reality is, right? Because this is all about liberating folks who are oppressed. America first and all of that kind of stuff, you know, that would not 
that's not the blood of the lamb, mm. is it? Uh, and a very carefully selected lamb, very compassionately treated. Because, you know, a lot of the law is meant to help God's people to treat not only one another with compassion, but to treat all of God's creation and everything that is in within their stewardship with compassion. You know, holy water kind of a thing. So that all are welcome here. Every time I bless water for my font and any stoops, you know, that happen to be in the church, after I bless it, I take it. This makes me emotional. I take it and I um, draw the sign of the cross on all of the doors and lentils Mm. into the church building. And I say a prayer that all who enter in through these doors find peace. Mm. And so for me, you know, that's, I guess, I didn't even realize it, but that's sort of my homage to the Passover blood over the doors that may I only in my ministry remember how I'm supposed to treat people when they come through those doors and guiding people out through those doors, may they take that with them. And so for me, that's what that would be. One of you had said something about sacrifice, you know, the lamb is a sacrifice and maybe the blood on the lintels could also be the sacrifices that we do to help our neighbors or to help each other or to create community. And so as Christians, probably going to talk about this later in the gospel, but you know, they'll know we are Christians by our love. That could be the blood is how are we putting our blood, sweat and tears into whatever we do. It's really nice. Yeah, what what sacrifices are we making of our egos mm. in order to live properly in community, in order to sublimate what we want for the betterment and for the incoming kingdom of God, which is all about unity and community rather than self-preservation or promotion. Sacrifice the ego so you can take off your shoes and socks and let somebody wash your feet. I, I think we all need to preach about that. I know. And I tell them, you know, I'm going first and I've got bunions. So. <laughs> I don't know, Erin. I'm still going to get my pedicure before I have to do it. Oh, yeah. I totally get a pedicure. <laughs> They're not the most beautiful feet in the world. They are feet that wore heels and danced in them, you know, for years and years. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. I think that's the busiest nail salons are on the, that week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before. <laughs> <laughs> I can see a lot of my colleagues there. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. In Exodus, we are called to observe that day in perpetual ordinance. Is that what we do when we do the Eucharist? Or how do we remember this Passover and observe it as God commanded in our Christian faith? I'll say from personal opinion, I think one of the things that we can do is also honor it by not trying to co-opt it. Mm. to appropriate it. I know a lot of people who have a powerful tie to doing what they call a Christian Seder. From what I've heard from my Jewish brothers and sisters, that actually feels very much like appropriation to them, that this is a holy ritual and has been done so for generations and generations to keep that in its integrity rather than having the audacity to just kind of say, I want to take that. Now it's mine. (laughs) I think that's one we can actually honor it by keeping it as true to the roots of that as possible. I was glad that Hillary started with that because I was sitting here thinking, how can I, you know, say, I think we really shouldn't appropriate. (laughs) We've gone in another direction and, and this was not that same thing. It wasn't even a Passover meal in John. In Luke, yes, but not in John. And we say Christ, our Passover, which is a different, not that Passover, this Passover, which of course was for God's holy people, uh, the Jewish people, because that's who he was, as we all know. 
you know, maybe help people make that distinction as well. You know, I've had trouble over the years quelling people who say, let's have a Seder. And I'm like, no, we'll not have a Seder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, you know, if you want to, we can find a a temple somewhere and go and observe. I love that, Erin. You know, like build relationships with folk for whom this is their holy night Mm -hmm. and have that relationship so that they say, Mm -hmm. you know, well, come join us. And like, that's a part of building that relationship is entering into their holy time. I love that part of our liturgy where, you know, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. That's what we're doing, right? Is remembering the ways in which Christ has saved us in the ways in which he was a bridge from who we were to who we are, and that we keep this feast. We keep remembering that there is goodness to savor in the story of Christ. So I'll add one more thing maybe we shouldn't do. <laughs> With all, I know the question is what we should do, but um, it also strikes me too that it's a really good opportunity to correct some theology and obviously some anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So it gives us a chance to talk about the dangers of anti-Semitism and the dangers of appropriation. And on top of all of that, the dangers of sometimes very toxic atonement theories. There are so many different atonement theories. I'm not even going to pick one out right now, but to simply see this as you accursed sinner, God is mad, you owe a blood debt, right? You know, like that sort of atonement theology that by and large, we've started to evolve in a more holistic understanding of that piece of salvation history. I think it's a worthwhile moment to stop and say, there are issues here that as Christians, we need to stop and really evaluate what do we really believe? How are we called to love all people? and seek justice for all people. Hmm. We are all beloved children of God. And otherwise, there are too many dangerous avenues that could be taken on Monday, Thursday. I think it'd be wise for us to, to highlight and correct. Let's move into the gospel. I always struggle with Judas, right? In this one, it says that the devil put this idea in Judas's heart. So does that let Judas off the hook? In this story, sometimes I feel like Judas, sometimes I feel like Pilate, sometimes I feel like Jesus, you know, like... But at least in this one, I was like, oh my gosh, there's been so many times where I've done something and not necessarily intentionally to betray somebody, but there's, you know, maybe somebody told me something and then I didn't realize it was supposed to be confidential and told someone else. You know, there's all these different things. Where do folks land on this? Does Judas get a bad rap? You know, he's a good character when like a diamond, you can keep taking him out and looking at him in different ways, right? Mm. He must be one of the most human characters in the whole gospel. And I think what's beautiful about it is we don't have to look at him or ourselves in one way. There's a fullness within ourselves that can go from seeing the universal Christ in each one of us all the way to the betrayer in each one of us. The opportunity here is to not fall into the true oppression or possession, however you want to call it, however you read the story that Judas falls into, which is a deep hopelessness. I think he might be motivated here by a hopelessness of needing to have the Messiah be one thing, like somebody who might be able to liberate in a certain way with military might. And then when he loses hope that Jesus is that, then he puts his hope back into the very religion Jesus might be looking to help reform and institutions. And then knowing that an institution is also a part of the empire and this leadership anyway. And what do we do when we've lost hope and when we're scared, right? We do something very similar. We start looking for people of like-mindedness, or we start looking to put our faith in institutions or politicians. Mm. Eventually the ultimate hopelessness of thinking that he can't be forgiven 
that his relationship with Christ can't be restored. I think he shows us the myriad of ways that humans act when they're scared and when they're hopeless and the invitation that it doesn't have to be the last word on our story. I think you're absolutely right. And the only piece I would add is I think we love to sort of separate ourselves from Judas. We love to think, oh, that's Judas over there and I'm not him, right? Mm. I think that's part of what we like to do as people, right? Is we like, oh, well, that evil person, they did that evil thing, we other people, in order to separate ourselves from them and to feel superior. I think it's this idea, this illusion that evil is some sort of boogeyman or boogie monster out there that's far from us. Mm. In my experience, is much more mundane. It's the everyday decisions that we make where maybe... You know, like you were saying, Shaniqua, we make decisions and we just don't think of all the consequences or we just don't think, oh, that's how this is going to make that person feel. Hmm. And I think the trick is as leaders in the church is, of course, we have to make decisions, right? We have to move things forward, we have projects forward and congregations forward and all that stuff, right, in order to be productive and, and in order to really help people and to heal people. And at the same time, judging, okay, when... When do we need to move forward and when do we need to step back and go, okay, are we really thinking about everybody here? Are we really thinking about what's best for the common good? And I think in that we can realize the ordinariness of evil and betrayal and how we hurt people without realizing it. But I think a lot of people who walk into the Episcopal Church are pretty wounded. Mm -hmm. You know, they come from other denominations where they've experienced a lot of hatred. And so it's really incumbent upon us to really make sure that we are being a church of compassion in not just in the big stuff, right? Not just in, oh, the presiding bishop said this, or, oh, my local bishop wrote a letter because this awful thing happened. But in like, who do we pick to be in our vestry, Mm. right? Who do we hire for this staff position or that staff position? And are we doing it from a place of love? Just to take a differing viewpoint, just for the heck of it, Judas had a choice. But one of the things we want to realize is that he chose to represent the status quo. Mm. Because, of course, the temple leaders at the time, they were acting out of fear of the Roman Empire, of what was going to happen to them and what, in fact, did happen to them a few years later. That any time there was insurrection, any time there were voices that spoke out against the empire or against the civil order as it was, then that became a dangerous thing. And, you know, we need to never forget that, you know, one of the reasons, not all of them, but one of the reasons that Christ was crucified was because he was a threat to that order. Judas was probably being pulled many ways. I kind of think about him the way I think about Paul sometimes. Hmm. Paul had a conversion experience before he died. Anytime that we have a choice, that makes me think about talking to my congregation about the choices that they have, the choices that they have to turn away from whatever the divisive status quo is right now. For example, in our country, whatever the divisive status quo might be in their communities or their families and to turn towards being a little more compassionate in the way they look at one another. And the lesson that Jesus is teaching us in this is that he washed everyone's feet, including Judas's, and he led the disciples to understand that they weren't to draw their swords in the garden. They weren't to attack those that had attacked him or them. They were to continue to invite people into this kingdom that God had planned for us, into this way of seeing God as unity and relationship um, and not to go the way of further division, which he could have done, you know, in that very moment. He didn't call Judas out. 
he ate with him, he washed him, he gave him every chance each time. And then, in, of course, in John's gospel, he's like, do what you have to do quickly. Go ahead and do that before I lose my own nerve. Hillary, I think what you said, like about, so about the fear piece, and sometimes I think when we're presented with information, right, we can react out of a place of fear or we can choose to react out of a place of love. And maybe what we see in Judas is this reaction of a place of fear, uh, which is a choice, right? But then I wonder what it would look like to react out of a place of love. And then my other thing I was thinking about was like, I wonder if they had the right of reconciliation if Judas would have used it and if that could have brought him back into right relationship with the disciples and what that would have looked like. And I know during Holy Week and during Lent, I always bring up the right of reconciliation and tell the congregations that I work with, hey, I'm here if you want to do this. Very rarely do people take me up on it. I'm not I kind of feel like I'm called to preach about Judas on Monday, Thursday, which maybe is not the best place to put it, but maybe I could do it on Good Friday too. How does reconciliation fit in this? I love the right of reconciliation. Wrote a book on it because I'm such a fan. For me, this is where the rubber hits the road. It goes back to that balance between fear and hopelessness, even about ourselves. Like, do we believe that we are what our shame tells us, what our fear tells us? Or do we believe that we are what God and Jesus tells us, right? Hmm. The big difference between shame and guilt, which is an important distinction at this time of year when you have so much shame and guilt language floating around in our liturgy. Guilt is when you see that you've done something wrong and you realize, okay, that's not who I'm called to be. Time to change my ways. Time to walk back in reconciliation with God. And shame is that place where we think, well, of course I did something bad because I am something wrong. Mm -hmm. And this does go back to that bad theology I was talking about earlier, right? Like what we need to preach on this day, we have to be very careful because there is a call here to a change of life. There is a call to a reconciliation, but there's not a call to be ashamed of who you are because you are a beloved child of God, right? Which is why we start with this Ash Wednesday reminder that we are dust and to dust we shall return. And by the end of all this, end with this beautiful reminder that we're also part of the body of the resurrected Christ. Both those things are true. <laughs> Both those things are true. And our hope is that that reconciliation, the call to return in that metanoia moment and walk back towards God is is open to each one of us. When you go to visit the Holy Land, there's this place where they have the denial of Peter Chapel, which is right next to where um, uh, Jesus is being held after his kangaroo court. And what's beautiful about that particular chapel are these series of what's on the walls. There's a triptych with three very large icons. The first is of Peter denying Jesus and his hands look like they're bound up when Jesus's are actually bound up. And Jesus is looking straight at Peter, does not even take his eyes off of him because I think when we're in shame, we feel like God doesn't even want to look at us. And yet here's Jesus looking at Peter. The next scene in the middle is Peter in the depths of despair. He's pictured almost in a cave, weeping for this distance that he's put between himself and God. And then the third is this reunited Jesus on the beach with Peter, right? And they have this moment to match the three-time denial of Peter, the three-time reconciliation of love that Jesus offers. Hmm. And then surrounding all of that, encased around that, is the words of the creed in all sorts of different languages that say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, right? So whether you're Peter or Judas or whatever, in this moment, all the fears of how we get it wrong with God 
need to be seen through that lens of the forgiveness of sins of it all, because there's so much more hope and forgiveness that abound in this story than the, the shame that gets layered on to it. I'm with you, Shaniqua. I'm always perplexed that more folks don't reach out. Similarly, you always offer, hey, you know, for the right of reconciliation, that's always an option. And for me, I just sort of wonder in church, right, we have this politeness culture. It drives me crazy because there are people who have all sorts of things they're frustrated with, right? Things they want the church to be, things they want their local parish to be things they hope for and dream for, but never either never know how to articulate it or, or never feel comfortable articulating it. And I'm always sort of wondering, how can we create spaces where people get to name what they most deeply want and what they most deeply need? Hmm. I often wonder, like, what would it have been if Judas could have gone to Jesus and say, this is what I was hoping you would be, what I most deeply needed you to be for myself to feel validated and encouraged and inspired. And why couldn't you be that? Why couldn't you be this thing that I most deeply needed and wanted if you really are the Messiah, right? And it could have been this incredible, incredibly transformative conversation, but I think the same thing for church. Like, what if we could go to our vestries, right? And not just nitpick over, well, you know, I was really upset because the priest wore glasses, <laughs> right. but actually ask the big stuff like, hey, can we sit down over coffee and can we talk through like, this is what I really want the church to be. And I don't think we're there yet. And I think we're going in the wrong direction. Can we talk about it? I'm like, yes, I would love to talk about that, please. And so I wonder if Judas can sort of be our reminder of the importance of honest conversation, honest, kind conversation in the church and really naming what we need from community and figuring out maybe we can't provide that. And maybe that can be in a really honest conversation. Like, I hear you. I get that's what you need. And this place can never provide that for you. But I'm happy to work with you and help find you a place that can provide that for you. What if church was more of that and less of, oh, the priest didn't, you know, wore glasses and I'm really mad about it. Right. Shiny earrings. Right. Shiny earrings. Their hair was too long. I didn't like that color green, whatever. Right. And it's interesting that he does do that before this, when he complains that the money was spent on nard and not on the poor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But see, to me, that's more about nitpicking. <laughs> if his actual conversation, if his actual question was, hey, I really care about the poor. I really care about how we're using our resources. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about making sure that we're tithing 10% of our parish budget to local nonprofits that are meeting the needs of the poor locally? To me, that's a different conversation. It kind of made me think back that the snarky response of the person who wrote that gospel where that was recorded was that, well, he used to steal from the common purse. Right. And so is that true? We don't know. We can't be there. But it just shows a little bit of how easy it is, even for the gospel writers, to fall away from the compassion that they were taught to have. With the foot washing that Jesus does, where in our church, if we were thinking about our church metaphorically, whose feet should we be washing or whose feet may we want to think about? I think Pope Francis here is a really good model. You know, his very first year in papacy, he was like, we're going to go to a prison and we're going to wash the feet of folks who are incarcerated. I will say, I think the Archbishop of Canterbury's visit to the Sudan most recently was hugely profound, a real moment of church unity, but also like really like going to the places where there is the most profound suffering and saying, we are here. 
We don't fully understand it. We don't know how to fix it, but we are here and we recognize that peace must come. And I think if we as a church can be really be discerning about where in our local context does Christ's presence and peace need to be felt most profoundly. Mm. Maybe there's an immigration detention center. Maybe there's a refugee resettlement agency. But where are the places that Christ's peace need to be felt most profoundly? And how can we facilitate that? Absolutely, of course, I think we should have a Holy Thursday service in our congregations and our church buildings. But can we also take it out from outside those four walls in a way that doesn't feel performative, right? In a way that doesn't feel like we're hunting for publicity. As a priest, I care about you. And can we do this together? Hmm. Yeah, I love that. You know, in some ways, just as you're saying, the answer is everybody, of course, needs to their feet watched, but in particular, those who have been proclaimed as untouchable by society, by the church, etc. One of the beautiful ministries of a colleague of mine, she goes down often into Kensington and helps with the foot washing and foot health clinic um, because so often the people who are deeply in poverty, they aren't touched by anybody during the days, right? Like, so not only is their foot hygiene often a source of health issues, but on top of all of that, they often cry just because somebody is willing to sit down and take their foot in their hands and touch them and clean and heal. I think this is the sort of thing that makes Monday Thursday not just this day that we celebrate in one liturgically extreme fashion, but one that then actually we get to live out. When I was a teenager, I was homeless. And then I also worked with homeless teens afterward. And I remembered like how badly folks needed like shoes and like clean socks and like boot rot is a real problem with folks because they don't always have clean clothes. And Maybe the foot washing could be getting folks clean socks. I agree with everything people have said and figuring out who would never walk through the doors of a church. Mm. You know, like I know Hillary every year, right, blesses the firefighters and, and paramedics who are local. They're doing shift work. They're not going to walk through the doors of a church building on th- Thursday night. You know, your local nursing home, right, folks who are so desperately lonely. I think in those places, right, the priest coming to visit really does make a profound impact. My church has a little food pantry that's been going on since the 1970s. They have increased, I think I even said that last year, from they were doing about 50 families that came through before COVID, and now we have about 170 families that come through. And so it's this huge, huge increase. And the people that do it, we have about six people that are like here all week just trying to get these boxes ready because since COVID they have the cars drive through and they've put together these boxes. And this is similar to that foot washing is that they have put together these boxes and one of them is a nurse and she thinks about the nutrition that goes in the box. And so they spend Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all day long looking at what foods have we gotten in and we get food from farmers as well as you know, the local food distribution places. And they look at what can we put in each and every single one of these where people have meals that they can make. Hmm. And they know the names, even though we have increased all of this, they know everyone's name. And I know that that too is a very big thing. You know, when you are feeling that you just can't even 
you know, look at the face of somebody else where you're having to ask for help again, that they have welcomed you as a friend and thought about what's going in this. They put toys in, you know, for the families that they know children. If people come through with dogs, there's dog biscuits in their spot. (laughs) You know, it's just this kind of lovely thing. The volunteers too, you know, they don't always make it to that Thursday night because they've been here all day on Thursday and they're exhausted and they're in their (laughs) seventies. Some of them are in their 80s and they're lifting these 70 pound boxes or 50 pound boxes into cars and things like that on Friday. And and I try to think of ways too, as their priest, that I can do things that connect them back to their own joy. Sometimes they just feel like they can't do enough. And, you know, what if we run out of food? And, And they're always worried about that. You know, there are so many ways and we can't do everything, can we? You know, so I see hope in Monday, Thursday more than anything else. Aaron, you talked a little bit about the way that your church shows love. And, and I, the thing that I always remember at the end of this gospel is like the, you know, that you love one another as I have loved you. If they'll know we are Christians by our love, what are some areas that you think maybe we could be working on that we haven't been working on as much? To my mind, the invitation to grow in love is the central invitation. It's not just about getting it right, as we've been saying with the sin forgiveness piece. It's not even just about what works of justice will we do, although that's a major piece of it. That is the way that they will know, right? That's the visible fruits of it in many ways. But it's also the ability to increase the capacity to be more and more like Christ realizing that what we see in Christ is a God who put nothing between us and the love of God. Not even death stands in between it. So this entire time that we're walking through this journey, we get to watch the love of God increase. Each one of these stories is more loving than the next when you really look at it. Some of it's service, some of it's justice, some of it is just willing to be with us for all eternity. There's no lack of invitation for growing in love here, but that needs to be the thing that we focus on most in all ways. And then the rest of it follows from there. If we put anything else before that love, we can experience a burnout at some point. We can experience a lack of hope again, as we've said, right? It's because as Paul says, hope, faith, and love, the greatest of these is love. It's what endures. So the rest of it, the hope that we've talked about, the faith that we've talked about, the justice that we've talked about is all coming from that love. Hmm. I really like that, Hillary, because that is the one thing that makes Christ get a little snippy with the apostles and the disciples and the leaders of the temple is when their language or their actions are focusing on the nitpicking, as Christopher says. Of course. I mean, that's why this is the Monday, that new commandment is love. To fulfill the rest of the commandments, you can only fulfill those with love. And so that's why it needs to be the new mandate. I always sort of think within like systems, I'm always interested in like, okay, how is the system working and how is it not working? And what do we need to do to fix the system to work for more people? Episcopal Migration Ministries does wonderful work welcoming refugees, right, through resettlement agencies throughout the country. But one area where the Episcopal Church, I think, falls tragically short is working with immigrant communities. Um, we're doing a little better uh, with folks, you know, Spanish speaking communities and, you know, communities that speak other languages. We have some really strong Sudanese congregations throughout the country, um, which is really encouraging and awesome. But what are we doing for asylum seekers? What are we doing for folks who are arriving new to this country? And not just like, oh, they can come to our feeding programs, which are wonderful, right? Like, absolutely. But how are we accompanying them? 
How are we learning their names, learning their struggles, supporting their kids through school, helping them navigate, you know, how do I get a driver's license or get my kids enrolled in school? Or, you know, are we willing to sort of go beyond what's comfortable for us and risk newness? What Jesus modeled throughout his life was always going to the place of deepest suffering and in that place of suffering, allowing his redemptive love to start healing people. And so that to me is what that new command is about, right? That you should go have love for one another, have love for the people on the margins and be willing to utilize church resources for that. Local parish resources, diocesan resources, our Episcopal church wide resources. You know, not just doing it for the soundbite or for the nice ENS article, <laughs> but doing it for the long haul when there is no media or anyone around to tell us we're doing a good job. In public health, we talk about policy systems and environmental changes. And so like thinking about like, what policies are we doing that support what we need to do? What systems, how are we changing the system to help it be more efficient or work better for the things that we need? And then how are we creating an environment that sort of makes the good choice or the right choice, the easy choice for folks? What messages from this gospel or from Jesus's teaching do you think that we're missing or we haven't paid enough attention to? The only piece that I would add is that it's a spiritual practice to let your feet be washed, mm. to let people love you, to find yourself worthy of God's love. You know, I think we can go around as clergy and, you know, certainly lay leadership and say that God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. But if we're not willing to really sit there and go like in the deepest, darkest recesses of my being, in the place where I don't think God's light could ever touch, that's actually where God is hiding. Um, and maybe not even hiding, but where God's waiting. And so really allowing this to be a time of transformational love to say that God's love can redeem everything, right? God's love can redeem Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, and that if we hang in there long enough with God, rarely on our time frame, God can redeem all of it into a part of this love story that continues to unfold. We have to ask God for that love. We have to be open to receiving that love. The people who are helpers a lot of times refuse to be helped. Mm. You know, kind of a summary of what Christopher just said. And Jesus is, this gift that he's giving are to those people. You know, the people with him in that room. You know, Peter refusing to have him, you know, wash his feet. Probably not out of a lack of humility, but out of too much. That we don't deserve that. This is what we're supposed to be doing for others. Hmm. trying to encourage, you know, for example, I'm always having to encourage my pastoral care team when they have surgery or <laughs> when somebody in their family dies or is very, very sick, that they get to have the meals too. You know, people get to take care of them. And they're like, no, 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 that's not, I'm like, it, it, yes. And if you can't receive it, where is the giving coming from? You know, that's a, that's a sticky place, mm -hmm. especially, you know, the ones that really and truly care so much for other people, but cannot seem to th see themselves as worthy of that same care uh, or is worth the trouble. They always say, it's too much trouble. I'm like, no, is it too much trouble for you? <laughs> you know. I was thinking about, as you were talking, that shame piece that we sort of talked about earlier, and then some of the like, I don't know if it's necessarily things that God needs to redeem because they're not sinful inherently. Like I think the messages the church has given, you know, for LGBT folks or for folks of color or for women or all of those pieces where we've been told that we are bad, 
for whatever reason, because we bleed once a month or because, you know, we have brown skin or because we love someone of the same sex or same gender. So I don't know if that God needs to redeem that, but it needs to be redeemed somehow. And I'm trying to, you brought that up, Chris, and it made me think about that. Like, how are we healing that internalized oppression that we have inside ourselves, and how can the church help with that? And how might the church help with that? Anyway, that was just a thought. That's a really good point. And I've got a couple of, and have had a couple of people through the years who have struggled very much with that. And just the conversations with people who are really internalizing oppression and suffering so much from it, you just kind of run into a a wall of of unknowing Mm. how to stand beside, how to sit beside someone when they're struggling to come out of that place that's just been, they're buried in. Mm-hmm. I have three thoughts. First is the, the the reminder that the reconciliation that needs to be done isn't just about the individual, right? It's also the corporate level. Mm-hmm. And speaks to a lot of what you were just saying in particular, that we won't be able to convince anybody that there are parts of themselves that are beautiful and good and holy when the church has spent a lot of time saying, actually, you should feel shame about it, right? Like, so there's a piece of reconciliation that the church needs to do publicly and corporately so that, yes, then there can be individual healing around those pieces that the church has been guilty of shaming. So that was the the first thing I thought. Then going back to the original question, there's an element of Monday, Thursday that I think we get to be invited into which is a kind of yoga principle of beginner's mind. The centerpiece of all the different cool liturgical actions we could do on this day is the Eucharist Mm. and can actually become muted with all the other interesting, I'm putting air quotes there, liturgical pieces that go around it. And so to actually take this moment to see it anew for the wonder it is anew, the invitation to cosmic union within as simple as bread and wine that it is, we get an invitation to have beginner's mind with this all over again. The third thing I'll, I'll say, we're entering into, as we've said at the beginning, this 30-day arc of vulnerability where we open our bodies, mind, and soul to the vulnerability of Christ, who is the very picture of vulnerability as a crucified person on a cross. Uh, having been shamed and betrayed and left there to die. The invitation throughout all of this that sometimes gets lost is that we're invited to be in the posture of least resistance through all of it, whether it's washing feet, whether it's crying at the foot of the cross, whether it is just pondering anew everything. That posture of least resistance is so antithetical to what happens to this world where we are told to be muscle up, bootstrap up, Mm. always have your walls up. And instead we're invited to be not resisting the sorrow of this, but also the joy of all this. And I think that's what, what sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of this day. Thank you, Hillary. You just got me started on my sermon. (laughs) (laughs) That's what this is for. Yes. I was looking down. I was like, Oh, write that down. Write that. (laughs) So What suggestions do you have for preaching this text, for preaching on Monday, Thursday? So it might not even be the text. Maybe it's something about the service or whatever you're going to preach on. What suggestions do you have for preaching? Please refer to everything Hillary has said. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll add one piece because I also teach homiletics. One piece I will say whenever I talk about this day and then some of the other pieces of the Good Friday in particular, choose one thing. Mm -hmm. Choose one thing. 
this is a feast of options that you could be preaching on with the liturgy, with the emotions, with the themes of theology, the bigness of the world and the problems it has. Pick one thing and focus deeply on that. And it can be a character study. It can be a liturgical study, but do it so that you can give your whole heart to it. That will preach much more than trying to give a theological treatise of all the different liturgical elements and the biblical elements and everything that's going into this. People will get lost because there's nothing to hold on to with all that's going on. And I would say, let the service be most of the sermon. It should be simple and short and just invite people in. I would invite the people into a time of listening, that this is an incredibly intimate experience where God can really wash over you and to really allow that experience, the wave of God's love to really immerse in that love. I also think it's important that God, Jesus, right, chooses to go to the the little places, the places that do not matter to empire. And I think similarly, right, coming to a church on a Thursday night and of course, on a Friday and Holy Saturday, it's not the place that if you're like a popular social person, like that's not the place you're going to go to, right? Mm. It is obscure. It's weird to go to church four times in one week. And yet I think that is oftentimes where God is found in the weird places, the offbeat places that don't make a lot of sense. It's not going to make you a lot of money. It's not going to get you a lot of followers on social media, but it could very well be the place where God speaks to you. Uh, I've got a whole class that I want to teach someday that's just called Keep Christianity Weird. (laughs) (laughs) We are children of the Enlightenment. We love something that's really good and scholarly, right? But we forget that actually the place where God enters best is the mystery of it all, the heart Mm. of it all, the place that is unexplicable. Like a comprehended God is no God. The weirder we keep of all this, the more we, we realize we don't have this pinned down. We don't have a scientific explanation for all this other than it's the mystery of love. And so let's keep it weird. I'm really encouraged to think about like, at least based on what we've talked about today, either preaching about Judas or preaching about that like deep, dark space and getting out of shame and getting out of that mess. So that way we can love, right? If our heart is so full of shame or anger or whatever, where is the space for the Holy Spirit to come in? Where is the space for us to be able to be transformed if it's already full? Of whatever. I was going to say that connects, I think, to what Erin was saying, right, about letting her people who are head of the pastoral care team, right, the head of the food pantry, letting themselves be loved. Mm-hmm. That if you allow yourself to be vulnerable in this time and really let God's love touch you and then serve in those places, in those ministries from that place of profound connection with the divine. The thing I was also going to mention is there are a lot of characters that are a part of the story that are not named here. Mm-hmm. You could do a fascinating study about what Mary, the mother of God, is going through here. The fact that he's about to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and say, but not my will, but thy will be done. Where does he learn that? His mother at the Annunciation. Or Mary Magdalene, the fact that where did Jesus possibly learn a ritual that was typically done by women in the household? Well, we have the story of Mary previously washing his feet, right? Like, And they're there. They're the ones that when Jesus says, hey, don't leave me. They take that all the way to the cross. There are plenty of other people who aren't even named within the liturgical context of this who are present, whose very hearts are tied up in this that are also worth preaching on as well. As you were saying that, that that was like something that women typically did that sort of, if you think about queering the gospel or even like that puts Jesus in this 
almost feminine space, right? And uh, there's a whole thing that you could talk about in terms of like toxic masculinity there too that we didn't even touch on today. This is a very queer gospel. I mean, Jesus wants us to take bread like a woman would need bread. You know, Jesus wants us to stay with him in a way that, you know, he says, Abba, Father, but also we could say, I'm a mother, right? You know, we hear Jesus doing these household rituals and puts a cloth around himself. And of course, in John, the beloved disciple, right? There's this whole opportunity to queer the gospel here that's not to be missed. Thank you so much for being willing to share your wisdom and your theologies and all this wonderful stuff and giving our listeners so much, uh, and myself too, all the substance that we can use for our preaching and teaching as we go forward into Holy Week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Good to meet everybody. Yeah, delighted to be here. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Hillary, Aaron, and Chris. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that filled your spirit, please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.